Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you are listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I am pleased to be with Craig Blomberg to talk about his new book, Jesus the Purifier, John's Gospel and the Fourth Quest for the Historical Jesus, published by Baker Academic 2023. In Jesus the Purifier, Craig Blomberg advances the idea that the Gospel of John is a viable and valuable source for studying the historical Jesus. The data from John should be integrated with that of the synoptics, which will yield additional insights into Jesus's emphases and ministry. Blomberg begins by reviewing the first three quests, reassessing both their contributions and their shortcomings. He then discusses the emerging consensus regarding demonstrably historical portions of John, which are more numerous than usually assumed. Peeling back the layers, we discover in Jesus's ministry an emphasis on purity and purification. The synoptics corroborate this discovery, specifically in Jesus's meals with sinners. Blomberg then explores the practical and contemporary application of Jesus the Purifier, including contagious holiness that Jesus's followers can spread to others. Craig, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. That was a flawless summary of the book. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm grateful for Baker for providing it on the uh, <laughs> inside cover. So, Craig, before I begin uh, a conversation, interview on the contents of the book, I typically like to ask uh, people I interview their scholarly background and what led to the writing of this book. Now, you've written innumerable books on New Testament history, so I want to focus on your scholarly history in relationship to Johannine studies. What what have you done and what interests you in that field of New Testament research? Most of my early uh, writing and scholarship tended to uh, focus on the Synoptic Gospels. Um, I did uh, doctoral work ages ago on the parables of Jesus, particularly in Luke's Gospel. And um, there were people from time to time uh, who said to me, why, why don't you do something more with John? I had included one chapter in the first book I ever published on the historical reliability of the Gospels that was on John. But uh, again, most of the book was on the synoptics. Um, around the turn of the millennium, as I was talking with um, Actually, some of the uh, British uh, publishers uh, connected with InterVarsity Fellowship over there. Um, I mentioned that from time to time, people have been asking me this question, and they put it to me sort of as a, a Socratic response. So what do you think? Is that something you'd like to do? Um and to make a long story short, it was. And so I wrote a book that was called Historical Reliability of John's Gospel, Issues and Commentary, that was published in 2001. And although it has the term commentary in the title, um, because it does work sequentially chapter by chapter through the book of John, it's not a it's not a full service commentary. It doesn't stop and talk about everything. What's the meaning of this word? What's the debate over the grammar here? What's the cultural background to this? But just looking passage by passage at what are the issues that impinge on questions of historicity. 
Um, I was uh, pleased that I had the opportunity to do that. Um, but that's been uh, 22 years ago now, and it's probably been 10 or 12 years ago when it struck me that there was starting to be a bit of a lull in um, publishing historical Jesus books, which themselves tended to use entirely or almost entirely the Synoptic Gospels. Um, and the dream for something like this uh, first came to be. I have to credit, however, Paul Anderson, to whom the book is dedicated, for having kept at the topic with uh, his John Jesus and History Seminar with the Society of Biblical Literature. And um, I would see him frequently at conferences and uh, it seemed as if this was the only topic that uh, he had on his mind, but had a passion for it and just kept encouraging me to do stuff, little articles, uh, one paper that I contributed to his seminar. But uh, when I talked a little bit more about the idea for this, it was just all, just go for it. We need all we can get. Fantastic. Paul Anderson is a wonderful scholar. I was sad to miss out on the Pacific Northwest SL, SBL, which was at George Fox. And so I was hoping he'd be there, but I sadly was able to miss it. So the first portion of your book is kind of his extended historiographical treatment of the various quests for the historical Jesus. And the first portion of this first half focuses on the influential account of the first quest by Albert Schweitzer. What does Schweitzer get right about historical Jesus studies up to 1900? But what does he, in a sense, overlook too? I remember the first time I ever taught a Gospels class to a group of undergraduates at Palm Beach Atlantic College back in the 1980s. Um, I think I had assigned um, Ralph Martin's New Testament Foundations, which was still comparatively new. Uh, now it's long since been out of print. But um, he represented the sort of standard, if you're never going to read Schweitzer, but you want to read a couple of paragraphs about him, what people would say was he was an amazing German polymath who lived and wrote at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century before he went off to become a medical missionary doctor in, in West Africa for much of his career. And he wrote this book on just about everybody he could get his hands on who had said anything about historical Jesus, um, particularly in German, but occasionally elsewhere uh, in, in German scholarship throughout the 19th century and the way his work was presented was that he said sooner or later everyone remakes Jesus in their own image and therefore is not successful at finding the true Jesus of history after all. And then the uh, comment was made that others have made as well, that Schweitzer himself, 
um, fell into the same trap um, that uh, he was a, a fan of late Jewish apocalyptic writing, had immersed himself in all of that, and therefore Jesus turned out to be a, an eschatological prophet. Um, but as someone who believed in the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God, clearly within the first century, he was wrong, and he died, as it were, a, a defeated hero. So this proves to be very influential in New Testament research, this portrayal of Jesus. But it seems that in the first half, especially middle half of the 20th century, new methods and new angles of historical Jesus research emerge, particularly around figures like Rudolf Bultmann. Explain a little bit about what this new quest, or has some some called no quest, what were they talking about when they spoke about the historical Jesus? And I don't know if you're going to get at this later. I was uh, guessing what your next question might be. Um, I, I stopped where I did because one of the things I say early on is I don't believe that that broad brush assessment of either Schweitzer or his book is entirely accurate, but we can come back to that later if you'd if you'd prefer to do that. No, 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 please. Um, what what were the deep inaccuracies or or just the the general inaccuracies that Schweitzer portrayed of the nineteenth century? I, I think that um, what others have summarized uh, was most accurate when he dealt with. Um, what is now often called nineteenth um, century liberalism or the old social gospel, uh, people like Adolf von Harnack who popularized the, the concept of the the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, uh, the idea that uh, just like uh, the late nineteenth century was a time of uh, incredible technological advances and expansion and. Uh, geographical settlement uh, slash conquest in different parts of the world um, that humanity was also morally and socially progressing and evolving and that Jesus' message uh, fits right in with that and in essence says, uh, keep at it, guys. Um, When it comes to the other movements that Schweitzer surveyed, um, I'm not sure that it is as accurate to say that he was trying to say that they fell victim to some methodological pre-understanding. I think the more important thing uh, when you read Schweitzer and read him repeatedly and carefully is that he was saying Everybody who wrote before a man by the name of William Vereda, who was a contemporary of Schweitzer's, um, and himself, can be categorized to varying degrees in one of two streams of thought. Um, He referred to them as literary criticism and... um, thoroughgoing eschatology. Uh, By literary criticism, he meant something much more specific than that, 
that Vreda believed that um, the whole idea of Jesus as Messiah was not something that emerged from the historical Jesus or any events uh, surrounding Jesus' life, but was an overlay put on him uh, literarily by those who wrote about him uh, after his death. Schweitzer, on the other hand, uh, saw uh, Jesus, as it were, as a, a failed messiah, but definitely as one who saw himself as the last and final and greatest prophet of God, um, and in at least some sense, therefore, a messianic figure, um, but expected God to supernaturally intervene and bring about his uh, apocalyptic kingdom. Um, And so really the criticisms, the strengths and the weaknesses that Schweitzer finds in everybody before him is how much do they point forward to and foreshadow the view that he is personally going to hold or how much do they not? And that then determines the marks that they get. When you look at what Schweitzer then goes on to do, he he does not fall victim to some pre-established uh, philosophy. He says, this, this is a foreign worldview. This is not a, a philosophy that's amenable to modern people, a.k.a. early 20th century people. Um, he believed that um, Jesus was never bodily resurrected, but that his spirit lived on and that from his spirit, which was reflected in much of his teaching and ministry, um, people can be inspired to live um, better lives than most and uh, to do things in keeping with uh, Christianity's historic understanding of God and his agenda. And he demonstrated that uh, as powerfully as anybody in the last 60 years of his life uh, in his work in Africa. Um, But that was not an outgrowth of his understanding of the historical Jesus. Um, So it's it's a classic example, and I could give others unrelated to this topic, where somebody somewhere comes up with a clear and compelling and partly accurate summary of a historical figure of some kind. It could be a a modern politician. Uh, It could be an art historian. I mean, all kinds of fields you could select. And because the vast majority of people never go back and actually read the primary sources, read the individual for themselves. Um, They just take this summary, quote it. It gets quoted often enough People think, well, it must be right. Look at how many people are quoting it. But nobody says how many independent sources do we have uh, who've actually gone back to the original. And it seems that there are some glaring, <laughs> there are glaring omissions in Schweitzer. He doesn't include, as you indicate, British scholarship of the New Testament throughout the 19th, 19th century. He certainly doesn't. Um, he includes Ernst Renan, one Frenchman that he devotes a full chapter to. Um, There even are the beginnings of uh, some American contributions, not a lot at this stage. Um, 
there are a handful uh, of uh, developments in other European countries. But yeah, it's it's very much uh, a German driven work. And it seemed that the predominant figures of the new quest that came after Schweitzer were also German. What were these figures like Boltman at That's all right. indicating or, or advocating in this new quest? In the early 1950s, um, after a, a period of time that uh, Tom Wright has called no quest, which is a, a also a great exaggeration, but it's a, a memorable term that you can uh, help remember a certain period of time by. Um, the combination of two world wars that shut universities, that sent scholars to become soldiers, that um, sent others into hiding, uh, and the volatile times in between, even when uh, the academy was functioning, um, were dominated in New Testament studies by a, a towering figure by the name of Rudolf Bultmann, who had differing opinions uh, at different phases of his scholarly life, but in one famous occasion said, I think that we can know nearly nothing about the Jesus of history other than that he existed. Now, he then proceeded later to write a, a book on the 70-some passages in the Gospels that he thinks Jesus actually said or did, although a lot of them are very short. Um, but this was the era of form criticism that was far more interested in what are the varying literary forms within the Gospels. Um, can we postulate ways in which these would have developed um, in the course of the generation or two of oral tradition before the writing of the Gospels or their written sources? And, and so scholarship just moved in a different direction altogether uh, to a large degree. After World War II, uh, a group of Boltmann's uh, former PhD students, uh, including uh, mostly Germans, um, men like Ernst Käsemann and Gunther Bornkamm, uh, Hans Konzelmann, but also an American, uh, young American by the name of James Robinson, who had studied in Germany and would go on to teach at Claremont for many years, uh, passed away not very many years ago, well into his 80s, um, at, a, at a reunion, um, started to speak, and Kaiserman gave a paper on a, a new quest of the historical Jesus, trying to look for um, criteria of authenticity. Uh, some had already been discussed by previous people, um, but trying to bring some methodological rigor and maybe even uh, uniformity into uh, how can we responsibly do historical Jesus study, recognizing that every gospel is, first of all, a work of theology intended uh, to promote certain Christian beliefs about Jesus, 
um, more so than just to give a dispassionate chronicle of his life. But how can we nevertheless um, find some core uh, minimum that to the extent that historians can make pronouncements about anything, uh, we can say this much we're pretty certain about. And uh, it's safe to build on this as, as we reconstruct the Jesus of history. Um, when you look at some of their findings, uh, especially for somebody who is from a more conservative or evangelical background, um, it's easy to come away at the end and say, that's all. But yet, Gunther Bornkamp wrote a book that first came out in 1960, Jesus of Nazareth. It was assigned to me as a, an undergraduate textbook at a Lutheran college that I attended in the 70s. Um, I now have my uh, THM students in a, a course on the quest of the historical Jesus read it after they finish Schweitzer. Um, and it is remarkable in that there are significant chapters, uh, significant uh, in terms of length of every phase and topic of Jesus' life and death and a good collection of things that Borncombe says, here's what Jesus probably said and did. Um, so when you look at it from that perspective, yes, there doesn't seem to be any unambiguous messianic consciousness um, the resurrection, um, and to some degree, miracles more generally, especially the, the more spectacular nature miracles, are in a different realm of inquiry that historians just can't adjudicate on, Bornkamp would say. Um, healings and exorcisms, however... Um, whatever actually happened, the perception was that there were sick people who were suddenly well. Um, so he grants at least that much. Um, but if you compare his results with where he came from, with his teacher, with Boltmann, and with most of that preceding uh, half century, you can see why people called it a new quest. It was uh, um, charting some new terrain. Seems that the a flaw of this new quest, at least ideologically, that would be addressed in the next quest was the Judaism. <clears throat> That's right. Anti-Semitism. How, how did this new quest uh, embrace a kind of anti-Semitic pro program? In its in its Probably historical the Jesus research. most um, popular and agreed on criterion uh, of authenticity was what was called the uh, double dissimilarity criterion, or sometimes just abbreviated to the criterion of dissimilarity, which looked for things in the Gospels that Jesus said or did that were so dramatically different from what we know of, and even by the mid-20th century, uh, we had available uh, encyclopedic-sized 
collection of ancient Jewish writings, um, something so dramatically unique in some significant respect, it's just very hard to imagine any other Jew that we know anything about besides Jesus having invented this. And when on top of that, the topic is something that does not seem to remain a major focus of early Christianity, maybe not even in the rest of the New Testament after the Gospels, um, certainly not as you get beyond the New Testament, then it seems unlikely that some Christian uh, in the first or second generation after Jesus' death would have invented it and attributed it to Jesus wouldn't have fit any particular agenda at that time. When you find things like that, um, a classic example would be the, the emphasis on the kingdom of God. Um, God as king is a pervasive concept in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, but the expression kingdom of God does not appear once. It's a rather remarkable observation. It's incredibly rare, even in the Second Temple Jewish literature. Um, after the Gospels, oh, it's there at the beginning and end of Acts and a couple of points in between. And there may be a dozen references in all of Paul's letters and a few beyond that. But nothing like the 80 or so that you find just in Matthew, Mark, and Luke alone. So this would be a classic example of saying people weren't talking about the kingdom of God in so many words before Jesus, and they weren't talking about it very much in any words um, after Jesus, perhaps because it wasn't nearly as meaningful a concept once you moved outside of Judaism. Jesus is probably the originator of his teaching about the kingdom of God. So the new quest leads to the third quest, which emphasizes very much Jesus as Jewish and Jesus as an eschatological figure. What are some of the major figures and themes of this third quest and their arguments surrounding yeah. these two topics. And and the third quest, which some would say is we're still in, um, even though it is tailed off, whenever you're parceling history up into periods of time um, and you get down to the one that carries through to the present, almost by definition, it's going to have the greatest amount of diversity in it because uh, you have to wait about a generation to go back and see what lasts, what's significant, what endures, what patterns really are there. Um, but um, the problem with the uh, dissimilarity criterion and the uh, picture that emerged um, of Jesus is that if you're just going to focus on what's distinctive about Jesus, then you may have something you can be confident is historical, but you don't have that which was perhaps characteristic of Jesus. For him to be a, a meaningful figure in his world, he had to have significant overlap with the Judaism of his day. 
and he had to have been understood and followed by a fair number of Christians after him. And so placing Jesus into um, a securely Jewish context now that uh, we're far enough away from the anti-Semitism of uh, World War II and the events surrounding it um, is probably the defining feature uh, of the third quest. But then also um, putting Jesus' deeds and teachings into um, not just an atomistic piece by piece, um, here's a, a ball of candy, unwrap each little bit and uh, then figure out if they have anything in common, um, but rather uh, an understanding of what the earliest forms of Christianity were, how they must have derived themselves from Jesus, uh, going back even to things like what's adequate to get Jesus crucified. If your Jesus is just a kind moral teacher who never worked miracles and really didn't upset the religious authorities, then there's no explanation for the single most secure historical fact about his life, which is crucified under Pontius Pilate. Um, and so the third quest in many ways has, has swung the pendulum away from the distinctives that the new quest or the second quest focused on. Um, and uh, then it has drawn on um, interdisciplinary studies. It has drawn on the availability and the awareness and scholarship surrounding um, other early Christian texts, some of them Orthodox, some of them Apocryphal or Gnostic, um, but really making sense of Jesus the Jew. Um, Giza Fermesh, an Oxford scholar in the 70s, wrote a a blockbuster of a book called Jesus the Jew. I was in college, um, and I remember um, picking up the the copy of Newsweek that was in our college library back when people read magazines in hard copy because that's the only way you could get them. And uh, there was this little, almost like sidebar uh, rectangle in the corner of the cover that got my attention, sent you to a page inside, and it was a, a major book review of this work called Jesus the Jew. It was almost as if that was an oxymoron. We all know Jesus was a Christian. He wasn't a Jew. Well, um, Christian wouldn't be a term that would be invented for a while yet. And if we're talking ethnically, um, he very much was Jewish. Um, but we were still close enough in time to the years of the, the Third Reich and the uh, Nazi ideology that uh, people had to come to grips with that concept. <clears throat> so this, you know, becomes a very dominant consensus within New Testament scholarship in the latter half of the 20th century. But 
in a parallel track, as you indicate, there was a group of scholars based primarily out of my alma mater, Vanderbilt, that as well as in um, Oregon, that advocated for a not very Jewish Jesus, a Jesus who was sagacious, a Jesus who was wise. What was this parallel uh, historical Jesus quest of the late? Yeah, the famous Jesus seminar with mm-hmm. uh, in the nineties, a lot of media attention because they gathered anywhere from fifty to a couple hundred people for any of their meetings and discussed different parts of the Gospels and eventually voted on uh, the degree to which uh, an individual scholar was comfortable saying this did or didn't come from Jesus. And everybody had red, pink, gray, and black uh, little balls um, to cast their votes with. Red meant Jesus said or did it exactly as the Gospels say. Pink meant pretty close, not quite exactly right. Gray meant, um, this has been substantially changed, but there is a core truth here. And black meant, no, nothing like it really happened. Um, Their initial uh, results uh, had 18% of the sayings of Jesus and 16% of the deeds colored either red or pink. So that was uh, uh, quite quite the challenge, Um, not only to the previous historical Jesus quest, but because these scholars courted media attention in ways which, at least still in the 90s, was considered in the academy very bad form. Um, scholars were supposed to do their work, be as objective as possible, um, kind of like the years when uh, you were supposed to be um, an amateur to participate in the Olympics. And then people started accepting too many uh, advertising contracts And they wanted the NBA stars to be able to play for the American basketball team. And so they threw that out the window. Um, And I'm afraid today we've kind of thrown that out the window. But um, I don't think we should have. (laughs) Uh, So this this was a time when uh, the leaders of this group, as you listen to them share their own personal stories, every one of them, was very candid. They had had bad experiences with either Protestant or Catholic, conservative, evangelical, or fundamentalist backgrounds. And they were on a mission, a mission from God to free as many people as possible, especially out of the American public, from what they saw as the um, entangling cords of conservative religion, and they went at it with passion. As problematic as the scholarship of the Jesus Seminar was, I I'm still I always think I would have loved to have seen the movie that they were proposing with Paul Verhoeven, but uh, never came out, <laughs> never came out, probably for good reason. But so, so we've gone through the, the various quests of the first half of the book, 
And one element and that is missing in all of this that you indicate in a, in a wonderful chapter is the Gospel of John. And in fact, the Jesus Seminar, I believe, with maybe a, a few bits and pieces, had blacked out the entire Gospel of John as being ahistorical. So what, what was the, the state of John in historical Jesus research? But I think more importantly, what were Johannine scholars, which you know seem to be kind of in their own realm, talking about the historicity of John in this That's time, right. 20th century? Um, one of the things I try to do in the book at each stage along the way is uh, point out some outliers, some folks who were paying some attention to John. Um, but truth be told, they were definitely outliers. And uh, it really wasn't until um, the late 50s, uh, thanks to a, a very unorthodox bishop of Cambridge by the name of John Robinson, um, whose biggest claim to fame was he he wrote a book in the 1960s called Honest to God that was the the darling child of all the death of God theologians. Um, but then uh, he turned around in the 70s and wrote a book called Redating the New Testament and shocked even the conservative scholarly world by saying every book in the New Testament was written before 70, before the fall of Jerusalem, and therefore within 40 years of the life of Christ. In the 80s, he... Uh, didn't finish before he died, but posthumously one of his colleagues finished and published a book called The Priority of John, um, in which he goes through um, every major stage of John's gospel, uh, compares and contrasts with the synoptics, recognizes what everybody else had recognized, that 80 plus percent is unique to John's gospel, but instead of saying, and therefore, you've got to pick, either you follow the Jesus of the Synoptics or the Jesus of John, he began to say, but 80% unique is not 80% contradictory. And this wasn't anything like um, older attempts at a harmony of the life of Christ where you just pick and choose, and like a jigsaw puzzle, work all the pieces in somewhere. Uh, Robinson didn't accept everything in the Gospel of John. But he said, here are the things that using the kinds of historical criteria that have been being developed um, certainly make sense in Jesus' world. They fit themes, um, actions, behaviors that we see uh, in the synoptics. Um, there are unique features of John's style, which probably exacerbate why he feels so different. But this is not a world of exact quotations or even uh, quotation marks or any felt need for them. Um, it's an age of, uh, if you're faithful to the gist of what someone says, because there weren't such things as footnotes in bibliography, the way you did not quote unquote plagiarize was by putting your own twist or spin or emphasis on a previous historian's work. 
Um, Robinson got all the way through to the second to the last chapter, and if you stopped reading there, um, you would say, oh my gosh, this, this man must have been on the threshold of becoming a Bible-believing, thumping Christian before he died. But then you read the final long chapter, and it's, but lest you think that's where I'm going with this, um, let's take a look at all of this so-called high Christology, all of the I am sayings in the Gospel of John, all of the lofty claims. I am the good shepherd. I am the light. I am the living water. I am the resurrection and life. I am the door. These are all metaphors. These are all metaphors that come out of Judaism. They come out of the Old Testament. They don't necessarily suggest that Jesus is going around saying, Hi, I'm God. What's your name? Um, let's not exaggerate the Christology of John by superimposing the Christology of the early church a few centuries later. Um, I fear that he swung the pendulum too far away from some high Christology, but he certainly did have some good points to make along the way. All of that, um, and others who reacted positively, negatively, neutrally, um, is what many Johannine scholars, certainly by the time we're up to the 80s and then into the 90s, uh, were talking about. They weren't talking about the historical Jesus, but they were talking about, you know, there's a significant minority of the information in John that... Uh, it's probably historical. What have been some recent developments in New Testament studies regarding historical Jesus research that Johannine scholars have used to emphasize the historicity of portions yeah. of John, such as the uh, the SBL John Jesus in History Seminar? Well, that's that's the big one. Um, two thousand and three, two thousand and two, thereabouts. Um, it was sort of a controversial title for a seminar. It wasn't automatically accepted. Um, you get a trial run of a period of a few years, uh, and then if you meet certain criteria, you can do it again. And then there are some things that become <coughs> more like standing committees um, or, or standing seminars. But John Jesus in History... Um, there are three volumes that the SBL press itself has published um, and at least another four in the works. Um, they've been considerably delayed by a variety of factors. Um, but um, Paul Anderson has um, not, not just at SBL, but at uh, the Society of New Testament Studies, uh, international organization um, that meets annually uh, in other circles, 
any place where he can get a group of people interested in listening to some Johannine scholars um, keeps beating this drum um, and is himself has written prolifically, um, but is building toward what he keeps saying will be a major historical Jesus book. And the, the dates uh, keep getting postponed and postponed. Uh, so I hope uh, he doesn't postpone it so long that he never does it. Um, uh, but uh, that, and it's not as if that's what everybody interested in John is talking about. There are still plenty of people that say, well, that's an interesting sidelight. I'm more interested in John's theology. I'm more interested in his literary uh, prowess. I'm more interested in the sociology of his community, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the John Jesus and History Seminar people in the 2000s kept saying, maybe it's time that we talk about a fourth quest of the historical Jesus, one that gives the fourth gospel parody with the synoptics, which doesn't mean we say we're going to find as much in John that's historical. doesn't mean we're not. Parody simply means we're going to treat it as an equally appropriate source for us to ask historical questions of and apply our criteria to. Um, in the last decade, um, those statements have shifted, um, particularly at Paul Anderson's lead, but it's not just him. Uh, James Charlesworth has been another uh, key player here, um, saying Enough scholarship has appeared now that we can speak of a fourth quest of the historical Jesus. Now it will remain uh, for historians 20, 25, 30, 50 years down the road to see if this turned into anything or if it was just a blip. Um, it might There might be a footnote in a, a textbook in 50 years saying, before the real fourth quest, there was this odd group of Johannine scholars who claimed to have started one, but it fizzled. Um, we don't know yet, but uh, I like the enterprise, so uh, I wrote trying to push it along, nudge it a little bit further down the road. And that's a great transition because the second half of your book is a kind of nudging, uh, emphasizing historical portions of John. <clears throat> Explain your kind of method here be before we get to the my question on the motif of purity, this, this notion of criterion of authenticity. What does that prove or rather what does that make possible or plausible when investigating the gospel of John? Well, I, I didn't want to steal Paul Anderson's thunder, nor did I want to try to produce as major a work as he is probably producing. So I focused on a single criterion that sometimes is called um, cutting against the grain 
or um, the criterion of what's not part of the tendencies of the tradition. Um, in uh, some circles, uh, where there's something really awkward that shows up, you can speak of the criterion of embarrassment. Um, but basically what it says is, for the sake of argument, let's suppose that the majority of John is so theologically overlaid that we really can't methodologically separate fact and fiction if there is any to be separated out. But in every passage, or at least almost every passage, if you recognize what John's overall patterns of theological interests are, pretty much well agreed upon, find which of those appear in the passage you're looking at, um, bracket them, cut and paste and put them on the side of your, put them on your second monitor, not in your first one. Um, what's left? What's left that might be through a variety of criteria, but especially this sort of cutting against the grain, the historical core of the passage, if there is a historical core of the passage. Do that through the whole gospel. Don't get too bogged down or you'll never get on to the next step. And then go back and look at what's left. Um, I think of a, a, a jigsaw puzzle, uh, a big one. Let's say we're, well, it doesn't have to be huge, but let's say we're doing 500 pieces. If I go through and um, through whatever method someone chooses to use, um, I remove 300 of those pieces. What do I see in the 200 that are left? Are they all on the right side of the puzzle, even though I thought I was doing something random? Um, are they scattered about the whole puzzle? But my goodness, I can see the entire face of all four people that are doing something in this puzzle. That's not a coincidence. Um, or, um, huh, there's blue sea, there's blue sky, and two of those people are wearing blue shirts, and everything that's blue is what remains. In oh, that's not an accident. Um, some, something's going on here. Um, if, if that's a helpful analogy, um, what happens if you do that to the Gospel of John? And I think you can answer the question in several different ways. <clears throat> but but one of those ways is you keep finding things left about purity, sometimes based on the symbolic use of water, in, including the real use of water, but not just to clean dirt off things, but also to, to symbolize uh, ritual and also moral purity. 
Um, sometimes there are details about cleansing, um, sanctification, which comes in the Greek from a root that also refers to purification. Um, there may not be any water or any other kind of liquid at all, but there are themes uh, relating to both ritual and moral purity. Just too often to be coincidental. Um, and at that point, I've got to then say, well, now, is this something that's such an outlier? Um, I have no hint of it in the synoptics at all, that even though there's a pattern, it must just be one more thing that John made up? Well, no. Um, purity is there in, in all the Gospels, but it's it's a subtext. It's never a... A major text, if you go to just about any historical Jesus book you want across the entire third quest, you might find one out of 20 that actually has a section of a few pages labeled something about purity. Most of them will just have a few scattered comments. Um some don't have enough for it even to make an index entry. Um, but you'll find something there under some other heading. Uh, you have to use different words. Uh, but uh, corpse impurity, certainly these are issues at uh, the uh, deaths of the people we see in the synoptics that Jesus brings back to life. Um, the impurity of bodily omissions we see with the uh, hemorrhaging woman whose healing is described in all three synoptic gospels. Um, various skin diseases that rendered someone unclean. You have lepers in all of the synoptic gospels that fit that. Um, keeping or not keeping a kosher table, regularly characterized by eating unclean foods. And one of the things that is a recurring motif not a major theme, but it's a motif in the, the synoptics is Jesus eating with the most notorious of sinners, including those uh, like tax collectors who reveled in the good life from the Gentile world, including all of its bacon and shrimp um, or whatever they had access to. And so thinking, huh, Maybe we have here a theme that just has not gotten enough attention in historical Jesus scholarship. Um, maybe this is one contribution a fourth quest can make. And then if you begin to synthesize some of this material, um, which I had done um, oh, now coming on almost 20 years ago, 
um, in a book called Contagious Holiness, Jesus Meals with Sinners, almost entirely based on the synoptics, but also, as I did here, with a lot of run-up, with a lot of historical background. What did people in the Old Testament think meals were for and about? What about in the intertestamental period, you know, building up ever so gradually to Jesus? One of the dominant syntheses of Jewish backgrounds is impurity, beginning with ritual impurity and then extending to moral impurity as well, is what you have to worry about. It's like a disease. You might think of it as contagious. Um, Don't touch this. Don't eat that. Don't get too close to this kind of a person. Jesus, in essence, comes along, goes out of his way to touch lepers in order to heal them. He doesn't have to do that. But instead of him incurring uncleanness, there's no account that he ever said, oh, excuse me a minute, let me go to the temple, offer a sacrifice, I'll be back. He makes the unclean clean. Maybe that is not just a motif. Maybe if we are going back to the bedrock core of the synoptics and John alike, and not dismissing anything else, um, I don't want to fall victim to saying if it's theological, it can't be historical, but um, if for the sake of the exercise, we play the game by the rules that people have set out for us, and even then, even with the uh, 200 pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, we see these patterns. Boy, that must be central to what the Jesus of history really was about. How are we doing with it, folks, followers of Jesus? (laughs) Are we replicating the ancient Pharisaical obsession with uh, keep yourself pure from contagious impurity? Or are we saying, through the power of the Spirit, we've got a purity, a moral purity that can be contagious, that can have a winsome, redemptive, cleansing effect on others, especially when we model this in communities? And I apologize. I probably just wiped out five of your questions. I just got <laughs> uh, No, that's uh, fantastic. I think uh, you were able to summarize great portions of the book magnificently. And I, and I do want to say not only is the book Contagious Holiness one of the best in the uh, NSBT series, New Studies in Biblical Theology, but um, the, the, I, I found your kind of epilogue in this book uh, very inspiring. So I'll ask just one 
kind of minor penultimate question, although maybe it's not so minor, but one penultimate question that you didn't touch on, but I thought was a really interesting argument of your your latter portion, which is you see that there's a trajectory in John where Jesus focuses, it seems, on ritual purity to begin with. But then as the gospel continues, that becomes less and less of an issue for him and moral purity uh, becomes the emphasis. So explain that argument just a little bit. Well, whatever John the Baptist was doing, um, it certainly came out of a preoccupation in Second Temple Jewish circles for ritual purity, uh, regular self-immersions, Pharisees asking Jesus about uh, why your disciples don't wash their hands. Um, and, and we laugh because it sounds like a contemporary mom to their four-year-old. Um, it has absolutely nothing to do with, with physical hygiene. They didn't understand that. Um, but everything with being acceptable before God. Um, here is uh, a man who is being called to prepare the way of the Lord, uh, and suddenly the Lord will come to his temple. And when you look at the first four chapters of John, there are just a whole barrage of things. John's ministry, um, the wedding at Cana, where the water that is turned into wine just happens to be in six stone jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. Huh. Something's going on here. Then you have the temple cleansing. Now, wait a minute. That's supposed to be at the end of the Gospels. Well, it is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the John, Jesus, and history people say, well, we all know Jesus could only have done that once, but I'll tell you when he did it. He did it up front. He didn't do it at the end. Now, I still wonder why it's so impossible. He couldn't have done it twice, but I won't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> That's right a whole now. other, you know, multi-hour interview. That's right. yes. <laughs> but the point is, where do we get the idea of cleansing from? Not from the synoptics. That's just a prediction of the coming destruction of the temple. But early on, there could still have been some hope for cleansing. Then you go to Nicodemus, and it's all about you must be born of water and the spirit probably alluding to Ezekiel 36 and the cleansing power of the spirit. It's more metaphorical, but what's Nicodemus going to understand by it? (laughs) Not a lot, as it turns out, but background is, oh yeah, this, this fits somehow, John the Baptist thing. And And then, oh, stuck right into chapter 3, we discover that Jesus was a Baptist. Now, that's that's rather remarkable. Um, I mean, I became a Baptist at age 25, but not because I thought I had to follow in my Lord's footsteps. Um, I appreciate the denominational diversity and the arguments for, for different approaches there, but We get to chapter four, and it explicitly says John baptized, Jesus was baptizing, although doing it through his disciples, and then it's dropped. 
It's dropped like that millstone in the middle of the Lake of Galilee, never to be surfaced again. What's that all about? Is it because there was a, a shift in Jesus' ministry? If, if he kept baptizing, even through his disciples, from the major part of his public ministry on, you would think there would be some hint of it somewhere in the rest of John. You'd think there would even be some hint of it somewhere in the synoptics. And there are one or two people that think they've seen some hints. I'm not entirely convinced. Um, he offers the Samaritan woman living water, and that's got something to do with the well she's at where she's drawing living water, that is spring-fed water, but Jesus offers her the kind that will never make her thirst again. And then you start having different things occur. The lame man by the pool of Bethesda, who thinks that there's something special that will give him purity if he can just get in this pool at the right time. And Jesus says, no, I'll take care of that for you. I'm the special one. Chapter six, and the crowds in the wilderness. The one miracle that's in all four gospels, including John feeding the 5,000. What's missing? There's no water. There's no place. Well, I don't know. Maybe somebody brought their water bottles with them. They may well have. But there's no living water. There's no place for ritual purity. Apparently, it doesn't matter for Jesus. Chapter 7, you have uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus in Jerusalem, out of you will flow rivers of living water. That's not ritual. He said this because he was talking about the spirit, which had not yet been poured out on any of them. So we're starting to see a shift. Um, there are still elements of ritual purity uh, behind what's going on, um, and there will continue to be, but it's the shift we see in the synoptics as well. Um, what counts is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and I think historically that's credible. History, although we put it into stages, and, and sometimes something dramatic happens. A armistice is signed and a war is over and you can put it on a certain date or Putin invades Ukraine and a war is started and you can put that on a certain date. But I honestly believe that on, if it's true, as some people think that Jesus was raised on April 7th of 30 AD, I really don't think that the Jerusalem Post had an announcement on April 8th, Christians saying they don't need to go to temple anymore. Um, well, of course, they wouldn't have been called Christians, but... Uh, this is the kind of development that only comes over time gradually with fits and starts, uh, three steps forward, two steps back. I think something like that's happening with purity as well. Uh, just, just a side question, very briefly, regarding historicity of John, something I, I always um, find 
maybe too, maybe more interesting than it is. How old is John? Sorry, excuse me. How old is Jesus in John? Probably the same age he was in real time. Okay, because it seems that um, that was a perceived difficulty in early Christians. They, well, they didn't know how old he was. Stray comment that's unique to John when he is comparing himself with Abraham, where somebody says, "You're not yet fifty years old." And in our modern era of numerical precision, we say, well, nobody would ever say that unless you were at least in your late 40s, um, because that's how we think. Um, 50 was a round number, just like it is for us. There were other kinds of round numbers as well. Um, 50 for some uh people in some Jewish context was the age at which you were an old man um, or an old woman with lifespans not being as as long as others. So um, maybe it was their way of saying, wait a minute, you're not yet old enough even to qualify for being a sage, the kind that Abraham was. Um, And really, that is the only statement in the entire gospel that potentially has anything to do with with Jesus age. Well, thank you for nonetheless indulging me, Craig. I, I that's just always one of those stray moments in, in in John's gospel I find fascinating. Well, anywho, this has been a wonderful interview, Craig. Thank you for just an informative conversation on both the historical quests for Jesus as well as the important motif of purity in John and the Synoptics. Uh, before we end the interview, I'd like to ask you what future projects do you have planned? Anything related more to uh, Johannine studies? I am currently and have been for uh, the last couple of years very um, intensively um revising and substantially expanding a commentary I wrote uh, 30 years ago for the New American Commentary series on the Gospel of Matthew for a series that has started to emerge um, from B&H Academic called the Christian Standard Bible Commentary series. Um, And uh, in one of the rare acts of... uh, scholarly um, euphoria, um, they gave me, uh, said I could write up to twice as many words as I did the first time around. So I've got the opportunity to say a whole lot more, um, to interact with a a ton of stuff that's come out, um, totally rework footnotes and bibliography. um, And that's due at the end of this calendar year. So that is... uh, That's my most immediate project. Well, fantastic, Craig. Looking forward to that. The uh, NAC commentary on Matthew uh, was something I used to use in in, in seminary, and I look forward to to the revised edition. Well, uh, Craig, that is all I have planned in terms of question. I want to thank you again so much for discussing uh, your work, Jesus the Purifier, John's Gospel, and the Fourth Quest for the Historical Jesus. You're very welcome. Right. You've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, where I've been talking with Craig Blomberg, Professor Emeritus at Denver Seminary, discussing his book, Jesus the Purifier, John's Gospel, and the Fourth Quest with Historical Jesus, published by Baker Academic 2023. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great rest of your day. <laughs>